The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So it's always good this time of year to take a little time and ask the question, so what is it that we do when we sit and meditate? And really it's the question, what are we doing with our you know, we have this mind, we have this heart, and in a way we have two choices. We can just let this life play out, basically trusting, for better or worse, the habit energies that we've picked up through our genetic code and family of upbringing, our culture, and all the different conditioning forces that make the mind, the heart, the way it is, conditioned the way that it is. We can either just let that play out or if you don't like how things are, (laughs) because, I mean, that's what brings us to spiritual practice is somehow we doubt the wholesomeness of what's what's playing itself out. Like we see a lot of anger or we see ourselves doing the same thing, getting the same results, which is not so good, not happiness, but some other kind of result. So at some point, we come to this conclusion that we'd like something to change. You know, and that might bring you to a place like common ground or in your own way to some kind of a teacher or some way of studying. The Buddha says it very poignantly around this place in life where we, for for the first time maybe, or for one of the first times, we have a truthful truthful recognition that I'm a suffering being and I care about it and I want to do something about it. And at that place, we can either complain or scream or lament, you know, how bad it is to be a suffering human being or to be confused or to not know how to be close to another human being or you know, all the both mundane and and subtle parts of being a human being can be challenging. And we can either use that to be sort of dramatically upset or, in a more pragmatic way, we can use that crisis point to ask, well, does anybody seem to know anything about the human experience of suffering that I might be able to learn from? And that's the beginning of a spiritual search. And I thought it would be good for us to sort of both reflect how it is that we got where we are in terms of our own spiritual practice, spiritual search, and then just understand that very personal turning toward, does anybody know anything about this thing called suffering? One way to sort of make this a little bit more poignant, because there's a very natural place in practice where we go from, a, you know, just being concerned about our own well-being, our own sort of sense of safety and awakening and happiness, to somehow realizing that our happiness and our freedom somehow relates to everybody else and their freedom, their happiness. And it's a it's just sort of a thought experiment where 
if you can, imagine somebody coming up to you, maybe a young adult, even if you yourself are a young adult, or uh, somebody younger, a a nine-year-old, a 12-year-old. And in the most sincere, appropriate way, this person, this young person, asks you, because they're struggling in life, they ask you sincerely, do you know anything about how to be happy? Because I'm having a hard time in my situation. What would we... You know, what would be the wise advice we'd be able to give to somebody who really, and not just a specific thing, you know, how to handle this breakup or how to, but just generally, like they're coming from this place that generally it seems challenging to sustain a sense of peace, a sense of well-being, a sense of safety, a sense of engagement and, and, and meaning even. So what would we say? Now, we don't want to, you know, sometimes we reflexively think, well, I've got to say something. But actually, sometimes the best thing in those situations to say is, you know what, that's a good question, and I don't know. But maybe we can hold hands or walk together and see what we can learn. And so this place of humility, like, it's a good thing to do in September, we know what's coming. As those of you who haven't gotten sucked into the Game of Thrones, winter is coming. <laughs> and there's, you know, symbolically, of course, it reminds us that uh, it actually is useful. It brings up a lot of humility because somehow, archetypally, we think about something we can't control and we think about death this time of year. And uh, so it's, I think, conducive to a sense of humility. Like, here we go again, winter. (laughs) And uh, that's a good place to begin this reflection on, okay, so what do we do when we meditate? What do we do when, why am I going to Common Ground? Why am I reading these spiritual books? And to start with this place, this acknowledgement, well, truthfully, I don't know a lot about this thing we call happiness or peace. I mean, I don't know about it well enough. I don't understand it well enough to sort of make it happen. So, instead of pretending that I know, which is a very inefficient way to be happy, you know, pretending, being afraid of not knowing anything about happiness, so I'm going to pretend, I'm fine, it's okay, I'm doing fine, it's sort of, the shadow side of the Minnesota nice is it's like not having permission to be upset or not having permission to be confused or not having permission to have the dark side of our personality, you know, whatever that might be. You know, I can't talk about that. I can't let anybody see that because they might think of me as an unhappy person and I don't want them to think that, you know, because that's like a failure. Being unhappy is like being a failure. So this question, you know, why are we interested in a spiritual path? Why do we want to train the mind, to train the heart? Why do we want to practice? That's a word we hear a lot at Common Ground. How's your practice? 
How was that retreat? And it kind of begs the question, well, what, who's practicing? Why are we practicing? Where are we trying to go? And I think it's born out of some sense, like when we have that sense of humility, sense of honesty, and we look, something eventually dawns on the mind, which is our experience of suffering, stress, feeling alienated, feeling alone, feeling uh, like this life isn't good enough. It isn't the way it's supposed to be. Most of that in, <clears throat> on the surface seems like there's a problem in the world that I'm living. But at some point, if we're fortunate, it starts to dawn on the mind, usually at first in subtle ways, that the problem is in the mind and heart itself. It's not the fault of the world. It isn't that it's winter's coming. That's not why we're feeling depressed or flat. Or that my partner is such and such a way or that the world is such and such a way or politics is such and such a way. Or that I'm, you know, somebody who's been oppressed or traumatized in such and such a way. Although all those things may be real or true, but it starts to dawn on the mind that what our mind does with that, with the conditions, how it understands the conditions, that's more important. There's an old teaching story that I like about the Buddha (coughs) and a farmer (coughs) who took a lot of time to track down where the Buddha was, left the farm, left his family, because he had some things he wanted to ask the, the Buddha about, get some advice, some help. Eventually tracks down the Buddha and spends a long time telling the Buddha all his problems about the weather and about the farm animals and about his family and about this and that and you know things that don't work and no water and Buddha was, you know, as a Buddha would, you know, listens very attentively, a lot of compassion. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, yeah, okay. And then eventually the farmer's done telling the Buddha about all his problems. And the Buddha says, well, there's really nothing I can say except everybody seems to have 83 problems. And those are just your 83 problems. The farmer was a little shocked and, and then very quickly angry that he had spent all this time looking for the Buddha, finding the Buddha, and that this is all he can say. And he started to, you know, say some really rude things, you know, how could, why would anybody come to see you if all you're going to say is that everybody has 83 problems? And storms off. And just as he's about to be out of earshot, the Buddha said, well, you know, it's true, I can't help you with your 83 problems, but I might be able to help you with your 84th problem. Some of you have heard this before, you know. So what's the 84th problem? Not liking having 83 problems. Right? And this is, this is that, that dawning on the mind where we think it's, we think happiness has to do something to do with the 83 problems we have. And so we are constantly dealing with those 83 problems or whatever they are. You know, like my personality is this way or you treat me this way. Or the world is this way, the weather's this way, or my body is this way. 
and these are my 83 problems, and we put all our attention there, and we never consider the 84th problem. And this is where the humility comes in. It's a real step in the direction of humility to wonder, to open, basically, and see, okay, we can do this right now. Like, how do we know this moment now isn't the moment we've always wanted? You know, this moment, like, is there actually anything in the way of happiness now, or peace now, or whatever you see as the culmination of spiritual practice, are you sure it's not here right now? Whatever you're practicing for, peace, happiness, ease, an unconditional love, And it's interesting how we don't actually look here and now. Because we're so sure it's not here. You know, how could this be it? I'm sick. I've got a bad cold, you know. I don't know much, but I know happiness isn't about having a bad cold. I mean, that's what we think. So we're, we're dismissive. Or our society is, is still deeply flawed in so many ways. Ways that actually are causing lots of people deep suffering. All of us, in some way, are suffering because of the way our culture is. So there's clearly so much that needs to be done in this world to make it a better place. But does that mean we can't be happy? Like the way the world is, the way our family is, the way my personality is, the way my body is, the way the weather is. Are we sure that happiness comes later when everything's perfect, sort of that utopian view of happiness, that when the world's perfect, my body's perfect, my family's perfect, my mind is perfect, my closet is perfectly ordered, my to-do list is perfectly checked off, all my friends are also perfect, my (laughs) partner's perfect, then and only then are we allowed to be happy. That's kind of how we approach life, which of course you can see is just a a terrible setup for suffering because the world is going to be the way it is. The causes and conditions that make the world, our partner, the weather, the culture we live in, the way that it is, that's, it's its own sort of natural dynamic. Many, 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 many interdependent causes and conditions that make culture the way it is, make our body the way it is, make our relationship with our close, dear ones the way that they are. So it's interesting that this practice really eventually turns the mind right back into the heart itself, into the mind itself, for the cause of suffering. And that turns out to be how we learn how to take care of each other. How we help the culture be a better place. So it's not that we ignore our responsibility to care for our body, to care for the weather, to care for our culture, to care for our families, our communities, but that we see the causes here. And that's what sets up this particular spiritual path that the Buddha taught. This is a path we do, it's a very personal path we do alone, but it's best done together. This very personal alone thing, 
it's best done together. Because it's not the cultural habit to be, to be interested in being sensitive, to be interested in that 84th problem, right? That we think the many conditions of our life are the cause of our unhappiness. That's the 84th problem. And that struggle, that idea, that view, it's right here, right now. It's nowhere else. If it isn't right here, right now, it isn't anywhere. And so we can start to take a look at that. So the Buddha said something like, you can conceive of no enemy worse than an untrained mind, our own untrained mind uncultivated mind, and no friend, no dear one, better, more supportive than a well-trained mind. So instead of following our heart, you know, sort of that cliche, and there's some truth to that, but basically it's not about following the conditioned heart, the habit energies of our mind, because, like I said, they were conditioned through our genetic code, which basically, you know, most of the genes have to do with survive, physical survival, which doesn't work in the end anyway. And it can, you know... <laughs> and that instinct to survive, of course, is how we, we and not just us, all creatures use it, you know, in ways that cause great harm. So it's a very, that genetic conditioning we have from the fish and reptiles and other mammals and basically basically some version of what every other creature walking, moving through this planet has, right? So we have that conditioning that's being expressed in my life. Then we have the conditioning of our culture, which is some reverberation of that ancient genetic code to survive, but now it's by clan, people who look like me, you know, all the sort of injustices that get acted out in our culture all the time is basically some expanded version of survival where now we, now the survival involves my family survival or my clan or the people who look like me or people who are, have my same values or whatever that little bubble might be, or big bubble might be, but of course it's used then to make others other, and okay to that they're harmed, or okay to oppress them. So this is this is what's active, and fortunately there's one other thing, which is the, there's this reflective mind that can see this. Oh. This kind of conditioning is like this. This is what it feels like, looks like. This is how it gets played out. This is what gets set in motion. This can all be understood because human beings, we have a reflective mind. It's not often used. And in a way, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, to be fully a human being means to some degree this reflectiveness is active. If it's not active, we're basically acting out our animal conditioning. But to be a human means that we're acting out our 
conditioning and there's some reflective awareness. Oh, whoa, this is amazing. You know, when we see all the ways, like how we think and the values behind that thinking. It's so amazing, you know. It's like, it's not, you know, Minnesota nice to say that we're here judging each other, but that's the fact. You know, when I look around the room, that's what my mind, that's what that conditioning does. It evaluates everybody I see. Now the question is, is that reflective awareness there? Seeing it, seeing what's happening. Oh, oh, that's, that's how the mind works. Or like when I go home and see my wife and, you know, act out some power play based on, you know, ancient wrongs and whatever that might be. And it's so amazing to actually see, in all honesty, how the mind, heart, body, how it operates. Wynn and I used to have nicknames for each other. I don't think I've ever told anybody this. Maybe I shouldn't. (laughs) But basically, they're just kind of Stone Age nicknames. But it was like, helping us point to the like this sort of animal dense uh, power play nature that we act out all the time you know and not to be ashamed of it and just to acknowledge that we're beasts but somehow that acknowledgement that uh, the awareness of it the reflectiveness of of it allows for a whole nother path to unfold, right? It breaks. It can break the heart open into compassion, like caring about this. And then with that compassion, we can, at least in our own life, and then with ripple effects, we can find skillful ways to help each other not forget. Not forget that this conditioning is there, that we're afraid And because we're afraid, like as a frightened beast, afraid of not having enough, afraid of someone taking away what we do have. You know, because of that fear, we go down roads, you know, we act out patterns that make the world hell all the time. But we can, because when that heart starts to break open, when we see it honestly, clearly, with awareness, with mindful awareness, then we can remind, keep reminding ourselves, remind each other that it doesn't have to be that way. We can care about this. We can remember that it doesn't work. Right? Happiness doesn't come from maximizing our survival. Whatever that might be. <coughs> I mean, one of the great things about poetry and literature and maybe even good filmmaking, you know, and other modes of human beings expressing our collective wisdom, is we tell each other stories one way or another through some form. You know, our best stories are basically stories having to do with you don't have to be afraid of the conditions. 
you can be a beautiful, loving, wise human being and not act out to the nth degree survival. You know, scratching and clawing your way for another minute of existence or another brick of gold or whatever it is that you think is somehow related to survival. Like that there's a different, there's a different road to walk down. You could call it the road of love or you could call it the road of understanding or the road of freedom or the road of peace. So it's not about having the most or living the longest or having the most power. It's about being free. And this is the real turning point in spiritual life when we understand that there is another road and it has to do with understanding. The whole path the Buddha taught was, under, uh, was this path of understanding. And really getting that we keep misperceiving, right? We keep personalizing this conditioning that's all about survival. And remember, for us, as social beings and as beings deeply in the world of language, survival doesn't just mean living a long time. Survival means the survival of my idea that I'm a liked person, right? So that's an idea, but I want it to survive. And so if you start yawning or if some of you start leaving before 8.30, then I start wondering if I'm liked, if I'm good enough or something like that. So survival isn't just about physically surviving. It's about the survival of who I think I am. And we hold tight and we get, you know, that sort of desperate, um, frenzied tightness around those ideas of who we take ourselves to be, what we think is important. And then we get that dog-eat-dog world. So the turning point is when we realize that there's another way. First we hear about the other way, or we, like I said, a poem, a story, a song, or a movie that shows somebody, it's like, or maybe you just have a friend who sort of walks this, you know, acts this way, lives this way, who isn't caught in these stories, isn't desperately holding to some story, is willing to explore the freedom, like a heart that's free, not dependent on anything being fixed, not dependent on ground. That human being, that kind of human being, is powerful, right? Because they're not afraid of anything. So they're totally capable of doing the right thing, living in a way that's of value for everybody, because they personally don't need anything. And you see, it's a completely different orientation. My needs, like protecting my thought about myself, my physical needs, to not being dependent on that. But it doesn't mean you don't get what you need or you don't feed yourself or you don't clothe yourself or have shelter. It just means you're not reinforcing the idea that happiness depends on it. It's nice having a really nice home. Now I have a really nice home. It's comfortable, it feels safe. But I don't feel that my happiness is any way 
connected to the fact that I have that home. I mean, I might, I might feel some unhappiness if it was suddenly taken away and I was homeless. I probably would definitely feel some pain about that. But it's interesting to explore, like, what do we, what do we think our happiness is dependent on? And that's what happens when we sit. You know, we sit still, like in our formal meditation time, and there's just the breath and the sounds and the sights and the movement of thought. And in that sort of relatively quiet place where everything's moving, sensations are moving, thoughts are moving, sounds are moving, we're practicing not holding to anything. Right? We're practicing this groundless freedom. Like, is it really true, like we're exploring that kind of freedom, is it really true that my heart, my mind, doesn't need to hold anything? Does it need to be fixed on anything? Is it true that there's a happiness right here and now? A happiness of non-attachment or the mind not being fixed. So we're in a very direct and immediate way, we're exploring happiness. If your Buddhist practice isn't pragmatic in this way, so that you're directly, immediately exploring the possibility of peace, happiness, release, whatever you want to call it, nibbana, nirvana. If you're not practicing peace, how do we expect to find it? Like, do we think that struggling will be the cause for eventually receiving peace? Or being greedy, wanting a good set, will be the cause for something good to happen? So when we're practicing fear or practicing greed or practicing aversion, practicing some kind of controlling, struggling energy, then we're getting better at struggling, better at aversion, better at greed, better at whatever it is we're doing. So if we're interested in unconditional love or unconditional peace or the unconditional, unshakable release of the heart, then it makes sense. And oh, I should sit every day. I should find some place where there are fewer distractions because I need kindergarten. Eventually we want to do it in graduate school, which is out in the world, in our relationships, doing what we do. But we find a simple place to practice, like kindergarten, where it's quiet, where our cell phones are off, and the dog is in the other room, and the people we live with know to leave us alone. And we sit in a comfortable, upright way, and we directly, immediately explore the possibility of happiness, release, freedom, unconditional love. It not, it's not about thinking about it. It's either here or it isn't here. And so a lot of what we're doing is seeing all the activity, all the, the force of mom, the momentous force of planning, worrying, Basically thinking it's somewhere else. Thinking it's about the 83 problems. And basically an obsession about the 83 problems. Or maybe for you it's 8300 problems. But it's some number, you know, greater than one. And it's always, oh yeah, if only this gets resolved, then maybe I'll be happy. But not now. Not now. Because of this 
one to infinite number of problems we think we have. So that's why the basic um, form of the practice is to sit in that quiet place, to go to kindergarten, like and come to common ground. We have an open sit every morning, Monday through Saturday at 6.30 to 9. Sunday it's 8 to 10 a.m. And it's on the half an hour, so you can come for any half an hour or more than one half an hour. The bell rings at top and bottom of the hours. And just sit. You know, it's like this is a good kindergarten. It's quiet. You're with other people that will support your practice. <coughs> and remember that the starting off point is this heart, this mind, sincerely is interested in peace and happiness and release and freedom and love. Right? So we remember, we got to remember like why I'm doing this. And I have some intuition, some of you more, some of you less, and partly it depends on that, that particular day, some intuition that it's already here. It's not about first having a good sit, and then I get it, but that maybe it's here and now. And because it's here and now, it sets up the basic mode, which is to be intimate. Because if it's here and now, then settling sinking, relaxing, opening, listening deeply, willing to be sensitive. All of these moves, spiritual moves, would be in the right direction, right? Because if it's here and now, and then the question is, are we okay with whatever might be in the way? Like when something comes up like knee pain or restlessness or doubt or wanting to be home in bed, or whatever it is, then are we willing, are we going to, out of habit, think that, no, 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 I can't be happy because of this, one of my 83 problems, or are we going to say yes to that? Yeah, I can, whatever happiness, peace, unconditional love I'm interested in, it's got to be willing to include you too. The knee pain, yeah, you too, yes, to you. Doubt, yes to you. Restlessness, yes. Thinking I'm a bad person, yes. I did that despicable thing yesterday, yes to that. So, no matter what shows its face, we say yes to. Right when I was just getting interested in meditation, kind of began my practice with a big bang back in 1982. And I was obsessed before I started meditating. I was obsessed with death for like eight months or so, reading whatever I could get my hands on about like death and just what that meant spiritually and you know just as a human being, like the fact that I'm going to die. How does that help me figure things out? Now, of course, I was a young person at the time, young adult, just out of college, just trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. I thought I was going to save the world. I studied economics. Thought I'd get my PhD in economics and go to the UN and finally save this world. <laughs> I was pretty naive. And uh, <clears throat> but anyway, one of the first uh, Dharma books I came across was the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And some of you maybe have heard of that book. <coughs> it's an ancient text. I don't know how old, but thousands of years old, thousand years old at least. And uh, it's a very interesting book. It's sort of poetic. And uh, it's used a lot in Tibetan culture 
someone will often read it or recite it while you're dying. And so it's seen as like a guide to help people in the dying process. And in Tibetan Buddhism, there uh, there's this thought that you... Uh, when you die, when the mind, uh, the mind stream and uh, the trajectory of the physical body, they seem very much together. But yeah, in this life they're together, but they're actually two, according to Buddhist cosmology, they're two distinct trajectories. The body takes birth, lives for a while and dies, but the trajectory of the mind stream isn't the same. It continues on. So this is related to rebirth, of course. And so once the mind stream is not no longer connected to the body at the time of death, death of the physical body, then it's a little bit like a dream, I'm told, or as I understand it at least, and from my own reflections. It's a little bit like a dream because, you know, there's a physiological process when you dream that disconnects, like it's basically you're paralyzed. Um, the body, so that whatever's going on in the mind isn't going to be acted out in the body. And sometimes it's not completely done, and you see your your cat dreaming and does that sort of <laughs> little thing, or people twitching in their bodies. But of course, at the time of death, it's a more complete disconnection. And so the mind, you're in a mind-only world, like a dream. And so the only reality is what the mind what arises in the mind, the thought, images in the mind. And you know, like from all your dreams, and even in our waking life imaginations, we can have very horrendous images arise, demonic images, and really sublime, beautiful images arise. And so this is, in Tibetan Buddhism, is called the bardo stage. Maybe you've heard of that. Where all of your spiritual practice, and this in some sort of superficial sense, is to prepare you for that time when you're dead, the body's gone, and the mind stream's there, and now whatever the mind can imagine, it will imagine horrific images, really sublime and beautiful images. And the job of that mind is not to be confused by any of its projections, whatever it might be that arises. So I read that book, and then there was this very interesting book I read shortly after, which was the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the Psychedelic Experience, written by Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, two uh, researchers. Some of you know Ram Das. That was Richard Alpert. So they were psychologists at Harvard doing a lot of experimentation with LSD. And um, I had also experimented a little bit myself back then. And uh, so... That was really interesting because I knew that experience. This is before I started meditating. That sort of ungrounded experience when you take some of those chemicals, and I'm not encouraging anybody to do it. I'm just sort of sharing my experience. And uh, and then the mind, whatever sort of inclinations are there in the mind, they can express. And because the mind has some freedom from being grounded in this, what we call conventional reality, Whatever the mind imagines is as real as anything is real. And it can be horrific and it can be extremely beautiful. And now that was making a lot of sense. And then it occurred to me to actually start doing the practice, you know, the meditation practice. And this is what we're doing. You know, when we settle into the meditation experience, we're there, 
we're trusting, like we're sort of planting ourselves. We're saying, I'm staking, you know, this life in this moment. I'm staking it right here in this, in the awareness of whatever shows up. So you might have a horrific image like your to-do list. There it is. (laughs) Or something you said earlier in the day. Or might be, you know, tormented by knee pain. Or some bu- bu- uh, sort of sublime image of a vacation where it's warm and sandy beach or whatever it might be. These are the things that arise in our meditation. And we practice not thinking happiness is about any of these 83 things. Like getting rid of the beasts, the horrific beasts, or getting the bu- beautific images of success or beautiful vacation or whatever it might be. It's sort of keeping the ground right here, not afraid of this. Just And what is this? Well, it's the awareness of things coming and going. That's really our refuge. Being the one who knows. Oh, this, now this, now this, now this. And not taking any of the bait. No matter how beautiful the bait is or how horrific the bait is, we stay right in the middle, unafraid, not in need of things being other than they are. So we're really practicing being free, not in need, not afraid, not needing to go anywhere, not needing to become anything. It's a direct practice of freedom. And then when we are done and we go out into the world, whatever to whatever degree we've touched that freedom, we've opened to that freedom, then our response in the world is so much more creative and fearless because we're not entering our relationships with a lot of this neurotic need and fear. We've liberated the mind to some degree. And over and over again, and you do it long enough, a little bit every day, maybe get on some retreats once or twice a year or more, and you'll see slowly, gradually, that sense of fearlessness and freedom, the fearlessness to love unconditionally, whoever, whatever, and to respond and to engage all the messy places in our world. And this is what our world needs, you know, people who can engage without fear and aversion, without greed, without being, without our view being corrupted by all the trauma that we've experienced, all of us, each in our own particular way. Like how to get beyond the conditioning that we have. And it's really by willing to feel it and see it over and over again in the quietness of our practice. So I really wish this for all of us, this finding this path, walking this path, supporting each other on this path. We have about 10 minutes, 12 minutes. It would be nice to hear from folks. I'm sure many of you who have learned a lot, all the twists and turns of your own path, or questions you might have. So please use the mic and point it right at your mouth so we can all hear you. Who'd like to begin? It's always nice to say your name, too, if you speak up. Any questions or thoughts from your practice you'd like to share? Yeah, you want to pass it to the back, Alan? 
Yeah, my name is Kermit. Is this on? Mm-hmm. My name is Kermit, and um, I, I have a question. Um, you mentioned the idea that the attach the attachment to your idea of who you are is very strong. And I think it is really strong. I think it's as strong as maybe the attachment to physical survival. Um, yeah, it's probably synonymous with it. Um, <clears throat> the question is, what what is the what is the method for letting that go? You know, Anam, I know Anam Thubton was here, and I really wish I'd been here. But I, he talked something at one point. I picked this up somewhere. Something about using a method of uh, radical self-inquiry to dissolve that attachment or that illusion of self, really. Yeah. And do you know what that is, or do you have something else? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's and that's next week's talk, basically. But yeah. So the question is, how does once we get clear about the attachment to self, like? We're sitting in that meditative space and the fierce, fierce beast of the to-do list is there triggering all kinds of fear or desire to get it done or whatever it is. And then let's say there's enough wisdom, enough space in the mind to realize, oh, the mind's attached. It's taking the idea of I've got to do all this work personally, right? So there's this sense of attachment. And then the question is, I don't want to be attached because in that moment, what we see clearly is attachment is suffering. And that's an insight in itself, that correlation between whenever there's attachment, there's suffering. And then your question, Kermit, is like, well, what do we do with the pain, the suffering of attachment? How do we dissolve that? How does it go away? Well, one thing we can say, without a doubt, it doesn't go away because we want it to go away. Hating attachment, trying to get rid of it, is it's just another attachment. So this is where there's one move, one spiritual move that we use everywhere. And whether you call it awareness or intimacy or mindful awareness or paying attention, being mindful, but we have to be intimate with the experience of attachment because attachment is there for one reason only. The mind doesn't understand the way things are. So the mind is operating under the perception that it's personal. So of course I'm going to be attached. But we have to purify that perception that it's personal by being right in the middle, being intimate. And then the mind will realize it's actually not personal, it's just nature. But there's a, that takes a radical trust, right? Where we're feeling the unpleasantness of the attachment, but we're not acting on it because we know what that gives us, more attachment. So we're just there, being intimate, feeling what we feel, which is often not pleasant. Until the mind starts seeing everything that's moving, the attachment is moving, the ideas about the attachment are moving, the sensations in the body are moving, everything's just moving, and it just gradually dawns in the mind that it's all nature. And that's a powerful, life-changing insight. For some people, it's very gradual, and they may not even realize that those insights are happening that the mind is beginning to understand how impersonal everything is. It's just the movement of nature. And sometimes those shifts are more seismic, like a huge earthquake. And the person is disoriented for a while after it. 
they've woken up, they've seen something, and it takes a while for the mind to integrate into sort of know how to, in a conventional way, be an ordinary human being again. They might be a little weird for a while. You know, like some of you have read Eckhart Tolle's book, Power of Now, and he's got a couple others. But he's, you know, he wasn't a Buddhist practitioner, but for whatever reason, conditions were right, and he had that insight. He under His mind came to understand how impersonal it all is. And he just was basically dysfunctional for a couple of years. And of course, later, he was able to be quite useful as a teacher. But it took him a while to sort of know what to do with what his mind came to understand or what his heart had come to understand. But one way or another, the mind, the heart, this ongoing process begins to wake up to what this ongoing process is. It's not self. It's the activity of nature. There's actually no center to this process of mind or this process of heart. There's no center anywhere. We just assume that it's happening to me. But that's all language that then the mind gets attached to, this idea that there's a me to whom this all is happening or to whom it belongs in one way or another. So the key is just to keep at the activity of intimacy. Because if this is truly not self, not personal, well then that, the reality of that should reveal itself to the knowing mind, right? So that's the, that's the great invitation. Well, let's see. Is it all just nature without any center anywhere? Which means that the freedom is already built into the system. It's like, I don't, I mean, it's such a relief not to have to do Mark or, you know, to do Kermit or to do Scotty or to, you know, whoever we are. We don't have to do it. It's the activity of nature. I always say this, so we'll just let Monday do Monday. We don't have to do it. We'll see, you know, does nature get itself out of bed? There it is. There's the fear, okay? But just because it's fear doesn't mean it's personal. Like fear, I'll get fired if I don't get to work soon. So you just see what happens. Other thoughts? We got a little bit more time. What comes to mind? Yeah, Lewis, you want to pass the mic over? A couple of thoughts came up for me. One was, what are the stories or the ideas that we have about this thing we call happiness? And whatever the story is or the idea can keep us running in circles. Um, I try and be content with maybe something about being at peace with whatever arises. And it's something like embracing the present moment and letting it go. Uh, just as, you know, I follow my breath. Um... I think our, whatever culture that we come from, for the most part, um, it teaches us to hold on to particular ideas about being an individual, and that's something that has to be defended. Um, and to me, that begs the question of pulling up something that's more than courage um, and really 
trusting my breath. Uh, that's what I came here on. It's probably what I'll leave here on. And there's things that come up when you just sit in that or walk with that that you can't even anticipate or imagine what kind of gift that you'll get from just being present. And even the gift is something that you can treasure as it arises, but let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Yeah, and that's, you know, another word for that is intimacy. And we... For people who train with their breath, then just any time during the day when the mind reconnects, it's not that the breath is magical. What's really transformative is intimacy. A moment of the heart or mind not mediated by language. See, what Lewis was pointing to in terms of our cultural conditioning about telling us to hold tight to things, ideas of self, for example, that's all the world of language. And meaning, meaning, conceptual meaning, meaning having to do with language. But there is a meaning or freedom that's not mediated by language, has nothing to do with whatever we would call that. You know, we could name it with language, but that naming of it with language isn't it. It's just a pointer to it. So when you've trained enough, sitting practice or however you've been training, then on the fly during the day, we can refine that place that we trust, of being intimate. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't thoughts or there isn't language. It just means that one's understanding isn't being mediated by that language. Right. So, in Buddhist terms, we call that dharma or dhamma, the way it is, or is pointing to the way it is, not mediated by language. So, not the interpretation or the story we have about that it's all one, or that it's all okay, or that Buddha's got our back, or whatever we might tell ourselves. It's not the story. It's the direct experiencing of the mind or the heart that's free of the mind being attached to ideas. It's not afraid of ideas. It's just not clinging or dependent on any idea. Lewis could start a religion about the breath, you know, and uh, he's got some charisma, so we might follow him. But it would be sort of, this is what happens is we get uh, attached to the form instead of what the form is pointing to, which is that experience of intimacy, the mind that isn't clinging, the mind that's already free, the heart that's already whole, not fragmented. It's our ideas of good and bad that fragment our mind. Divide it up, break it up. Appreciate our community. Appreciate these ancient teachings that have been passed down by the women and men, by all the people who practiced before us. Now we're the recipients of these teachings. It's our turn in our busy lives, complicated lives, to do the best we can. 
become the causes for real peace, wisdom, love, and freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.